0: So this morning's reading is from Romans chapter 11, starting at verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their trouble become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask, Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you, Gentiles, Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry, in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches." If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in amongst the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted... But they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all.
1: Well, um, if you've just um, heard that Bible reading and gone, What was that about? That was so confusing. Don't worry, you're not alone. It is a really confusing part of the Bible. I I actually opened, uh, I was reading through a book by the the New York preacher and um, writer uh, Tim Keller and he said at the start of this section, he said, this is one of the most complicated chapters in the whole Bible. And I was like, oh, great. (laughs) However, um, it's still really important And so I want to try and lead us through this um, passage. Uh, What what it's about is um, it's about the kind of organic uh, relationship between Christianity and Judaism. Um, The Jews and the Christians were two connected groups in the time when this was written and still are to this day. See, the Christians read Jewish scriptures. They look back to the the Jewish um, patriarchs and the promises made to them and they worship a Jewish messiah. Uh, and a large percentage of the Christians in the time when this letter was written were converts from Judaism. Uh, but many Jews did not believe in Jesus. And so the Gentile Christians, who are the non-Jewish Christians, are asking questions about that. Why is that the case? And so Paul puts forward this somewhat complicated theological, but it is logical explanation to, to try and understand what is going on with Israel and why are some not believing in Jesus and um, as he does this what what we get is actually a picture of what God is like um, his personality he says in verse 22 consider therefore the kindness and the sternness of God God is kind but he's actually got this stern streak as well which we can't leave out of the ingredients and I want to add a third thing, which is not in the reading that we had, but it's in the very next reading, which we're going to look at next week, where he responds in his own thinking to what he, he says here, and basically says, God is so mysterious and amazing, isn't he? So I want to say, consider the, the kindness and the sternness and the incredible and beautiful mystery of, of what God is like. So you might um, have never read this book, this book called Romans, the letter to the Romans. I want to remind you um, of what happens in the first 10 chapters and I'm going to try and do it as fast as possible. So here we go. Um, Basically, it's written by uh, Saul of Tarsus, who is a Jewish terrorist who then converts to uh, Christianity when he's walking on the road to Damascus and and sees um, the resurrected Jesus appear before him. And at that point, um, God gives him... Uh, a special mission to bring the message of jesus to the gentile world and so at that point he's now called paul because he uses his roman name paul and the way he does this is by starting churches and preaching about jesus and one of the churches that he started was his church in rome and this church in rome was made up of jewish christians and gentile christians worshiping together and um At one point Emperor Claudius says um, the Jews have got to leave Rome so a bunch of uh, all all the Jewish including including the Jewish Christians leave Rome and so this church uh, in Rome was absent of the Jews for five four or five years and then Claudius said oh the Jews can all come back and when when they came back um, the 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 historians think that probably what happened was the the Roman church had a bit of issue with unity maybe a, a kind of a conflict between the the Gentile converts to Christianity, and the Jewish converts. So Paul writes um, this letter to try and bring unity to them, help them understand each other, and also, most importantly, give the the most full and detailed explanation of the Christian gospel. And what he writes goes like this. He starts off by saying that all of humanity is trapped in sin and desperately needs rescuing. And uh, they can't be rescued any other way apart from by God, because... They've tried to keep the law and that has failed. And so keeping the law is not a way to be rescued. And, and he says in chapter 3 that God finds a way, because he is holy and righteous and good, he finds a way to save people, and that is by sending Jesus. And Jesus um, becomes a representative of all humanity and um, is punished for the sins of all humanity and dies on the cross. And then three days later, rises again, showing that that death was meaningful and, and, and did achieve something. And, and so Jesus has this new resurrection life that he offers to people. And in chapter 4, Paul says that basically what God is doing is he's creating a new faith-based, multi-ethnic, new community of, of people under him, who, who, people who have Jesus as their Lord, Jews and Gentiles together. And he says there's now like two f- families in the world. There's the family of Adam and the family of the second Adam. And the family of the, the first Adam... Are The people that are caught in their sin and, and are living a life that's not, not going in the way God wants. But the people who are living in the new family, the second Adam, who is Jesus, um, they're living in the way that God wants. And so Paul says to the Christians in Rome, live like the second Adam, don't live like the first Adam. And he goes on to say that now God has, God has given you, he's done the work through Jesus, And he's given you his Holy Spirit so that you can live as Christians in the way God wants you to live. You can live in freedom. However, he says, you're not yet in heaven. So you will still experience suffering and you will still experience pain and and all the injustices of the world. And also you will still struggle within yourself. You might go back to living the old ways when you shouldn't. And you'll still struggle with that until you're, you're in heaven. Then in chapter 9 and 10, he sort of takes a step and starts having a discussion around Israel and what's going on with Israel. And he looks back to the past with Israel and he says, you know, Israel, they had a problem in that they, uh, they were uh, basically following the law. And, uh, and they thought that by following the law, um, that that would save them. And he said, what we've got to remember is, being part of ethnic Israel doesn't mean that you're p- part of the people of God. Within ethnic Israel, there, there are what he calls a remnant or the select few who do really follow God. Um, and that's always been the case through the Bible. And this becomes a theme in our chapter in chapter 11. And he says, yeah, but now, still to this day, he says, the Israelites are still trying to be right with God by, by obeying the law and trying to earn their salvation. They've created a new way of being righteous apart from God. So when we arrive at chapter 11, right? So that's my intro to get to chapter 11. You need that logic to get here. He's looking to the future now, and he's answering a question, well, where's Israel going to go in the future? Like, what, what has, is God is going to abandon them? Because they, they seem, there seems to be so many that are not responding to Jesus. And so that brings us to chapter 11 and, and he begins in chapter 11, you might want to open the passage just to follow along, um, in the first 10 verses by, by saying, basically, Israel's unbelief in Jesus is not a complete unbelief. There are a bunch of Israelites who have believed. He begins the argument by making the simple point that God has obviously not rejected the Israelites. There is that remnant still there. And they're, they're the Israelites that believe in Jesus. And he makes four quick arguments. He points to himself. He says, look, I'm a, I'm a convert from Judaism and I believed in the Jewish Messiah. So there's one example. In, and He gives a second example in verse 2. He says, don't forget that God has the power to select people and to choose them. And that's what he's doing with that remnant. This is how God has always worked. He gives an example in, the th- in verses 2 to 4 uh, from the story of Elijah, where Elijah thought, oh, there's no one left in Israel that's faithful to God. And um, uh, they're all bowing down to the idol Baal, said Elijah. And yet there were 7,000 who did not. And they were the faithful remnant that God chose. And Paul's basically saying, this is the way it's worked. If you, if you read any chapter of the Bible in the Old Testament, Paul's saying, that's how it works. There's always a faithful remnant. And fourthly, he says in verse 5, five and 6, he says, don't forget about grace as well. We worship a God who is a God of grace. What guarantees that there will always be a faithful remnant is not that there will always be a bunch of um, good people, good Christians or good followers of Jesus, but what guarantees that there will always be a remnant is that by God's grace there will always be a remnant. He will make sure there always is. This is the kindness of God. Even if so many people reject him, he holds out his hand and finds a way to make sure there are people who stick with him then he goes on in verses 7 to 10 and he says that it just it talks a bit more about this idea of earnestly seeking uh their salvation he said many of the israelites really tried really really hard to 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 earnestly be righteous but the end result was that their hearts became hard this is a big theme in the bible The When your heart goes hard, it means it turns away from God and it's not interested in God anymore, rejects God. You're resistant to him. It's like God bounces off your hard heart. But it's actually also something that God does to you. You start start off the process by rejecting God and then then he takes over and makes you hard. If, If you read the story of Moses in Egypt, you'll see that happening to Pharaoh over time. His heart becomes hardened. As he hardens his heart, God hardens his heart. And so... Israel rejects God and they start to harden their own hearts and God hardens them too. Look at verse 8. And here he's quoting um, the prophet Isaiah who is quoting Moses. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. That's the hardening heart. And he's basically saying Isaiah warned you and Moses warned you as well and now I'm warning you about this as well. Then in verse 9 and 10, he quotes Psalm 69, which says that this hardening is a form of punishment. He says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Uh, One theologian writes, pride and self-centeredness lead to hardness and lovelessness. Rejection of God leads to rejection from God. Though God executes it, it is a natural consequence. So this is the sternness of God, I think, that he's referring to later on in verse 22. God, he's not just some kind of fluffy genie. He also, um, he has a sternness about him where if we reject him, he can hand us over to that rejection. He's a God not to be messed with. Now, believe it or not, this whole thing about hardening of hearts this sounds pretty full on, but it's actually a warning for religious people. That's that's who this is targeted at the most. Look at verse seven. What the people of Israel sought so earnestly—these are the religious people. What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. They were eager. They had religious zeal. They tried to pursue God in their own ways, not in God's ways, and they ended up rejecting Him. They believed in a false gospel. This is a gospel that says that you have to prove yourself to God by being a good person. The true gospel is that God offers his love and forgiveness as a free gift. All you have to do is put your faith in him. That's the true gospel. The false gospel is about earning your own salvation, earning your own holiness by being a good person. The true gospel is about God giving his holiness. He's a truly kind God. What Paul is saying is the majority of the Israelites choose the false gospel. And so, this is a warning to religious people because when overly religious Christians are motivated by fear and guilt, they end up following this false gospel. It makes them angry and disillusioned. This kind of faith does not bring joy, it makes you bitter and twisted. Now, if all of Israel had to follow this false gospel, there would have, this chapter would be different to the way it is written. But in actual fact, some accepted God's gracious gift through Jesus and put, they put their faith in Jesus. So, God, no, God hasn't completely abandoned Israel. Israel's unbelief is not complete. There are a few amongst them who do believe. Now, this brings us to the second part of the argument. There's two big parts. The second part is this. That Israel's unbelief is not final it's not the end of the story now to to explain this point Paul deals with a particular issue we've already said the Christian gospel teaches that God's salvation comes as an undeserved and gracious gift but so often Christians we we sometimes um, you, you know we think we're special And that somehow God owes us. And that those who don't believe have somehow got something wrong with them. And Paul's really dealing with this mistaken belief here. He's concerned that the Gentile Christians in Rome were starting to think like that about the Israelites. So he reminds them of the privilege that they have of being included in God's people. And he gives this illustration of an olive tree with roots and branches and cut off branches and grafted in branches... Um, now, the, in the, the illustration is this. The big tree, the whole olive tree, is the, the total people of God. The root of the tree are like the promises made to the patriarchs by God, the foundations. And all the branches are ethnic Israel, so the Israelites. But then there are some cut-off branches too, and they were those parts of Israel that just did not faithfully follow God. And, and so God breaks those branches off the tree in this illustration. And the grafted-in branches, in Paul's illustration, are the Gentile converts to Christianity. They're grafted into the tree. So Paul says, you are only a grafted-in branch. Don't think of yourselves as superior to the Israelites. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Now, just to illustrate the, the point here, so we've got an illustration from Paul. I'm going to give you another illustration, a more modern one. I brought my Hammond organ in today to play, and um, I was thinking about one of my favourite Hammond players, Billy Preston, who really famous, probably one probably the most famous, well, one of the most famous Hammond players of all time. And he played with uh, people like Ray Charles and the Rolling Stones, but perhaps he's most famous for playing with the Beatles. And see, what happened with the Beatles was at the end of their years together, 10 years, you know, the band starts arguing, and as bands tend to do after 10 years, and there's infighting and all that sort of thing. You, you'd know about that if you follow the Beatles' story. Um, so what they th- think to do is they'll bring in a, a, a keyboard player. They bring in Billy Preston. And so he gets the name as the fifth Beatle, and he, and he plays on their what, what what is released as their last album, Let It Be. And... Um, you know, I, I've seen in one of the documentaries about the Beatles, Paul McCartney saying, oh, it was so good. We were all on our best behaviour... I can't do the Paul McCartney accent. We were all on our best, beha- we best behaviour, yeah. Um, and um, he's like, yeah, suddenly we had a new freshness and, and, and all of that. So Billy Preston's like grafted into the Beatles. He looks nothing like the Beatles. He's black, he's American, you know, um, whereas the Beatles are pasty and white and from Liverpool, you know. He looks different. Um, and he even play, his influences are all different as well. But that adds this whole new kind of um, dimension to the Beatles. Now, can you imagine if Billy Preston started being arrogant about being the fifth Beatle and looked down on John, George, Paul and Ringo? Uh, everyone would think Billy Preston's a bit, you know, that's, that's not right. You didn't do the other nine albums or whatever. Um, you know, and that would be wrong. But Billy didn't do that. He was very humble. It's a kind of a parallel here. You're added on, you're grafted in, says Paul to the Gentiles, so don't look down on the Israelites. And there are some very important implications and warnings about this olive tree illustration. So, for example, just as the Gentiles were grafted in the tree, so too can Israel be, the broken off branches, be grafted back in again. Just as Israel was cut off from the tree, so too can the Gentile branches that have been cut... Uh, grafted in be broken off off the tree as well it works the same way with both ethnic groups remember the story of the the letter of the Paul's letter to Romans is about God creating a new multi-ethnic community Jews and Gentiles together so rather than boast over Israel Gentiles should look at unbelieving Israel and say this could be us the Gentiles should testify to unbelieving Israel and say we benefit from the spiritual nourishment that was first yours and can still be yours. Paul says, you don't support the root, but the root supports you. So don't disrespect the Jews. God is kind, but he's also stern. And Paul says, meditate on this. There's also, I wasn't going to talk about it, but I'll just quickly reference it. There's also this really, really wild bit in the passage where he talks about jealousy. And I'll just try and explain it quickly, okay? Okay. Basically, what he's saying is one of the consequences of Israel's unbelief is, um, is quite strange. Israel uh, rejects Jesus for a while, many of them, and so the gospel then goes to the Gentiles. But kind of like two children that get jealous of each other, what he says here is that as a result of many Gentiles embracing the Christian faith, many in Israel will become jealous of this and be drawn to respond to Jesus. So there's kind of this interesting backwards and forwards thing. So in a paradoxical way, or a mysterious way, Israel's unbelief is going to lead to Israel's belief in the future. Paul doesn't explain how this really is going to work, but I just thought I'd mention that because it's a really important part of the passage. Sometimes people think, this whole thing about um, you know, not taking for granted your the privileged p- place you have in the tree um, relates to us to this day. Because sometimes people can th- think can think that because, for example, they grew up in a Christian family or because um, they go to church and get involved, that suddenly, necessarily, they're on God's team. And the thing is, God is a kind God. He's not a mean umpire that's looking for you to make a mistake and wanting to break you off the tree. It's, it's not like that at all. But then on the other hand, you shouldn't take your faith for granted. You shouldn't take your place in the people of God for granted. Israel presumed, and this got them into trouble, the Gentiles should not presume. Paul and and the writer to the the book called Hebrews in the New Testament makes this point, which is that you, you don't lose your salvation. Once you're saved and with Jesus, that's for eternity. But some people kind of pretend to be Christians and what can happen over time is that this is exposed and they sort of walk away and, and it's like it never happened. And, and you, can tell, you can only tell if this is what's happened to a person because they give up and they don't make it to the finish line. The writer to the Hebrews says, We've come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Same point here, isn't it? if we have faith in Christ Jesus, we can be assured, but we never should be arrogant and take it for granted. And so Paul ends his section of chapter 11 by revealing a mystery to the Gentile Christians in Rome. He says, Israel's hardness of heart is not permanent and that all of Israel will be saved. What's he talking about? He's saying that at some point, Israel as a whole will experience salvation through Jesus. And he's predicting that many jews will come to faith i don't think he's saying the nation israel here he's talking about true israel the true people of god He doesn't say how this is going to occur or when it's going to occur but that it will occur so i ask you as i finish now to consider one more time the kindness and the sternness and the mystery of god he is mysteriously and divinely kind because even though people reject him yet he finds a way to um, bring them back to him and he's stern because he will hand people over their hard hearts. And he might even break some branches off the tree. But ultimately, he's kind. That's his true nature, because even though those who have had a hard heart, he can soften again. He's mysterious. Even if a branch has been broken off, he can regraft it back in again. So if you want to be grafted into the olive tree, and you want to be grafted into the people of God, then all you have to do is have faith in Jesus and know that it's a free gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything. He will graciously accept you. Just say yes to Jesus and you are grafted in. God's ways are mysterious and yet they are profound. The next verses sum up this mystery and I'll read them out as I finish. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.